Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. All Canadians, uh, including me, are frustrated uh, to see vaccines in uh, freezers and not in people's arms. That, of course, was Justin Trudeau talking about his frustration that there are vaccines in freezers instead of people's arms. Well, there really aren't enough vaccines coming into this country at this time. It's frustrating for everybody. We're going to begin with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. On Thursday, the Premier and his fellow Premiers had a phone call from the Prime Minister which dealt with the issue of vaccine rollout. Premier Moe, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, all the very best to you in 2021. Well, thank you, Roy, and the very best to you and all your listeners as well. If I may, just before we get into the issue of the vaccine and COVID, I'd like you to just share your thoughts with us about what happened last Wednesday in Washington at the Capitol, because you've described the assault there as an affront to democracy. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Well, I, I think that's exactly what it is. What we have is, uh, you know, an election that has occurred. We have elections all over the Western world and the, and and anywhere in the world where there are are democracies, and they need to be respected uh, when they they ultimately occur. If there's problems or challenges with the electoral process, that needs to be uh, corrected. But they most certainly need to be uh, respected. And what we saw. Uh, in Washington last week was, uh, you know, just gone far beyond what anyone could ever expect in a, in a democratic system in a, in, in, the, in, the, in North America for sure. So, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, a, I find it very challenging. Uh, the respect, uh, the, we all get into political debates and partisan debates, but the respect that we all have collectively for the great democracy, uh, in, in North America and in many other, the majority of, of the world, um, we, we need to respect that first and foremost, and that's not what was occurring uh, last Wednesday. So it's you know very very troubling, and and I hope it's a one and done and never occurs again in our great continent. Yeah, thank you, Premier, for that. We're going to be speaking with American guests a little bit later on the program, and uh, President Trump has been uh, dropped forever by Twitter, and we'll get into that in about uh, ten or twelve minutes. Premier, if I can just get to the right. issue that you and I agreed to speak about, and that is the vaccine rollout and the call from. Mr. Trudeau, on Thursday, uh, how did the, well, let me ask you, first of all, for your thoughts on, on the pace of the vaccine rollout nationally. Well, I, I think it's, it, it's slower than maybe what people had expected for, for numerous reasons. And you had played the, the comments at the beginning that the Prime Minister had made, and I think the Premiers had indicated they were frustrated that he was uh, making those comments about being frustrated. And so everyone uh, began the call being quite frustrated, but agreed to um, the fact that we need to work together as a, as a Prime Minister and Premiers, as a federal government, provincial governments, if we're going to do this properly and appropriately. And I think given the vaccines that we have, um, that is occurring. Uh, you know, I'll use Saskatchewan as an example. We are going to receive about 30,000 or maybe slightly more vaccines in the month of January. Um, when we have our flu vaccination program go on, we are capable in this province of administering about 80,000 vaccines per day. Um, so that is, uh, you, you know, a, a lot more capacity than, than what we are going to receive here in January. It's going to go up in February, up in March, and, and up as, as the months come along. So we most certainly have the capacity at all of the provincial health care um, uh, delivery, of public health care delivery uh, mechanisms that we have in, in, in Canada. So 
what we are doing here early in January in Saskatchewan and in other areas is we are ensuring that we are doing our most challenging locations first. Um, we're up in northern Saskatchewan, for example, in virtually all of the communities throughout northern Saskatchewan, um, where our pace might be a little bit lower than that 80,000 a day for sure. Um, the challenges of, of this vaccine are different than the flu vaccine in, in the, just the pure logistics of how we can transport it. So we're making sure that we get at least the first dose of all of these much more challenging and high-risk locations done first. We're also in our long-term care centers and doing our, our healthcare staff. So uh, we moved uh, beyond uh, the comments that were made uh, this week very, very quickly and, uh, and, and started to work on exactly, you know, what this vaccination program is going to look like in the, in the weeks and months ahead. It is going to continue to be challenging, though, because access to this vaccine is limited, not just in Canada, but around the world. And we are going to have to work together and work uh, in prioritizing those that have negative outcomes from, from COVID-19. And the outcomes of, for example, our youth are very, very different than the outcomes of, of our elderly. And we're going to have to keep that in mind as we find our way through the next few months. So, so Premier, the, what I got from what Mr. Trudeau said earlier in the week was he seemed to be assigning uh, blame or responsibility to the provinces for not um, providing all the vaccines that were available to the provinces to provide. So if we can, if I can get a quick comment uh, from you on that, and then what did uh, Mr. Trudeau commit to during the call with you and your fellow premiers? You, you know, you talk about uh, the rollout getting better and, and more efficient and hopefully quicker, but what did he commit to, if anything? Uh, we, what we, we committed to is uh, was we are going to ensure that when we do receive these vaccines, we get them into people's arms as quickly as possible across Canada. Uh, the Premier is committed to that um, and have always been committed to that, ensuring that we are also prioritizing those that, that um, you know, as I say, have, have the, the highest, highest risk of, of having negative outcomes. What the Prime Minister is committed to is trying to access additional vaccines early, as early as in the first quarter of this year, and we're hopeful that that will be the case. We, at the end of the day, um, this is a this is this is a this is a tough market to be uh, trying to procure these vaccines. Everyone in the world, around the world, is doing exactly the same thing. We're seeing uh, with different levels of success around the world as well. What our job is uh, at this point uh, with the prime minister is to do what we can to support Canada's bid in procuring and accessing as many of those vaccines as we can as early as we possibly can. And that's what the premiers have committed to uh, on the call is we'll do we'll do our part and we're asking the prime minister to continue to do his part and he is uh he he is committed to doing that we are uh, actively looking to see if there is a potential for us collectively to put more of these vaccines to make more of these vaccines available to Canadians earlier in this year the sooner that we're able to do that we're the sooner we're able to start having a much more positive discussion for a change and that's a discussion about how we reopen our communities and our economy and get back to some degree of pre-pandemic life. Yeah, so let me uh, follow up on that for a moment. Are you among yourselves as premiers discussing longer lockdowns, uh, curfews, other measures? Premier Legault has announced curfews in uh, Quebec, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. I floated that one on Twitter asking uh, my followers whether they would be in favor of uh, their province following the lead of Quebec, and uh, the response has been very quick, very direct, and the answer has been no. Uh, I'm not sure whether what a curfew actually would, would accomplish, because most people are going to be in bed or closed down voluntarily by 11 p.m., so I don't know what 
what a curfew from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. actually would accomplish. But are you as premiers considering uh, longer lockdowns, curfews, and perhaps some other measures? Uh, no, not collectively. We do discuss uh, various uh, uh, measures uh, that we have taken, both at the public uh, chief medical health officer level, but also at the premier level and the health minister level from time to time. But we haven't discussed um, you know, lock, further lockdowns or anything, anything uh, like that collectively as, as premiers across, across the province. Uh, each province has taken, uh, somewhat similar, but at times somewhat different approach to, um, trying to attempt to curb the spread of this virus. And let's, let's face it, the entire world is doing things, uh, you know, quite similar as well, but often in, in, in different ways. But what you're trying to do is really to slow down the interaction of people so that this virus doesn't spread, in particular, into uh, those that are most vulnerable in our in our society. Some some uh, provinces will uh, take a different view to that. Saskatchewan, uh, is, you know, continues to have restaurants uh, that are open in this province. We continue to have, uh, you know, our youth that are skating in small groups and practicing in their in the the hockey arenas across Saskatchewan. That's not happening in other areas, um, and we are hopeful that our post-Christmas increase in COVID numbers will be very minimal. We're starting to see a little bit of that now, um, but we're hopeful that we'll be able to work through that and and find our way, um, you know, through the next couple of weeks and ultimately the next month or two so that we can uh, start to head the other direction. I know there's a number in the Main Street media and there's some, uh, you know, academics and uh, things that will come out on all sides of you need to lock everything down across the nation. You need to do this. You need to do that. Uh, They're free to, to, you know, express their opinions. At the end of the day, it's the provincial governments and it is their chief medical health officers that will ensure they're making the decisions that are correct for the people in that respective jurisdiction. One more question for you. What's it like to be in your chair, in your behind your desk, uh, acting as premier of a province during this COVID pandemic? How, what, what's it like for you on a daily basis? Well, it's a busy time. Um, you know, you're doing some work from home. You're doing uh, uh, some work, uh, obviously, from our, our province's capital. Um, I, I would say that, you know, every day of work throughout this pandemic has been some of the most challenging days in, in my life personally and professionally. I mean, I think every day counts for two, it seems like, as we as we find our way through the, the last number of months and, and into the next few our chief medical health officers as well are carrying a big load throughout this, as are provincial ministers uh, of health um, and others that are involved. Our minister of finance, for example, is very involved with a number of the supports that we have put uh, in place for Saskatchewan businesses, workers, uh, people and, and communities. Um, so it's it's been a challenging time, um, but it's also been a time when uh, there's, uh, you know, for me, a great appreciation of the people that I get to work with each and every day. And I'm uh, Extremely thankful for the team of cabinet ministers, caucus members uh, that I work with, the, the public service here in Saskatchewan, um, but also an, a time to be extremely appreciative of who we are as Canadians and how Canadians um, do do the right thing. D- despite um, what you will hear on um, increasing numbers, uh, you know, post Christmas, increasing uh, second waves, all of uh, all of that is it's good information to have. But when you compare what Canada has accomplished uh, in many cases uh, to other areas of the world, we can be very proud of what we've done. And it has really reinvigorated my faith, not only in Canadian people, but in particular in the people that I represent here in Saskatchewan. And I could never be prouder to be uh, in the position I'm in. Premier, thank you for the time. I always appreciate you coming on the show and starting off uh, the new year for us with this 
really this all-encompassing issue and question that is just uh, bedeviling all of us. We want to get out of this and get back to some level of normalcy. Thank you, Premier, and well, all the best to you in 2021. Thank you, Roy, and we know 2021 is going to be markedly better than 2020. Absolutely. I have to get that CFL going again, too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I just want to lead off by saying that in Ontario, elementary school students will not be returning to the classroom Monday as originally scheduled, but we'll talk about high school students and the continuing skirmishes between the teachers' federations and the Ontario government. And uh, Harvey, thanks for coming on the show. Good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So if I can start, first of all, with the announcement that was made this morning by Stephen Lecce, the education minister, about uh, changes that are that are coming up as far as... Um, the uh, who's, avail- who's eligible for emergency child care in southern Ontario is concerned. Um, one of the uh, one of the groups is education staff, and I'm just reading from their news release here, who are required to attend schools to provide in-person instructions and support to students with special education needs who cannot be accommodated through remote learning. What do you make of that, and what's the fundamental relationship between the teachers' federations and the government? So... Uh in order, I mean, what, the, the announcement this morning goes, uh, it takes one step in the right direction, absolutely. So you have, you have some uh, educators, teachers and education workers, both who are in school face-to-face with special needs students. And there are definitely students who, for whom online learning is just, I mean, it, it, it's just not possible and they need the, the, the in-person support. Um, and so that those educators now have access to emergency child care is a useful step. It's still enormously difficult for those educators who are providing, you know, what's being described as synchronous learning from home while having to take care of their own uh, uh, young children. Um, but this was a step in the right direction. Um, in terms of the relationship between the, the you know, uh, the education unions and, and this provincial government, I would say it's essentially non-existent. We have been pleading with the ministers since March the 12th when the um, first closure was announced to include us in some consultation, to work with us. We will sincerely and wholeheartedly provide um, uh, cooperation and, and advice that would help make um, schools function more effectively and more safely. And we just got shut out at every turn. And I just, I, I can't understand the, the approach. What do you say to people who will say a pox on both their houses? Well, look, I mean, I understand that people are frustrated, but, but here's the reality. Um, educators are going above and beyond. They are, they are putting in extraordinary efforts to try to provide the best, safest education they can. We represent the voice of those frontline workers. We have advice, not, you know, advice to make things better. That's truly, um, that's truly our interest at this point. It's what we've offered repeatedly. Um, and, and I don't know what kind of, you know, um, ideological disposition prevents the government from from at, at least sitting down and listening to us. We don't expect that they're going to take all of our advice. Um, you know, no government would, but we do think we could contribute to making things better. So let me bring the the vaccine and the vaccination process into the picture, into the broad picture here. What approach, uh, what preferred um, approach, would the teachers unions have, and specifically I'll ask you to speak to the OSSTF, about implementation or required implementation of, uh, of the vaccinations and on-site testing? Yeah, so I'll, I'll begin with testing. I mean, I, I, 
I don't know why it's taken this long to get uh, particularly asymptomatic testing ramped up to some reasonable level that would give us some insight into what's really happening in schools. Um, there was one school in Toronto that had an outbreak when they did asymptomatic testing. The, the data that came out of that was truly, truly alarming um, in terms of the number of of students, um, and these were elementary age students uh, who, you know, very frequently um, can be carrying and spreading the virus, but aren't showing uh, aren't showing symptoms. So uh, that needs to be ramped up. In terms of of um, vaccination, we support the call from from organizations like UNESCO, from Education International, from the Canadian Teachers Federation to say, look, once we've dealt with the uh, high vulnerability populations and, and things like long-term care and healthcare workers, all of those people who clearly need to be at the very front of the line, then phase two should look seriously at educators being being given, you know, some level of priority. And I, you know, I can't say exactly what that level of priority is as a as a layperson, but when you consider that educators are working in schools where they can't practice the health measures that are expected in, you know, basically every other public place in the province, there isn't room for physical distancing in, in most of our classrooms, for example, then, yeah, I think educators should be, um, you know, like I say, somewhere near the top of the second tier. Would you be in agreement, or would the union be in agreement with uh, requiring vaccination the on-site testing we just talked about, but would you be in agreement if they, if the government said, "Look, we're going to make this a required reality for students and for teachers"? You know, I, I um, we don't have at this point a position on that, but I'll, I'll, I'll say what I, you know, what I think is is correct. Um, you're talking about a medical procedure. I, I they haven't really discussed. Um, nobody's been pushing the idea of mandatory vaccination. I think we would be very hard-pressed to support mandatory vaccination. Um, I think if it's voluntary, you will see a, a, a you know just an overwhelming uh, percentage of our members lining up um, to, because they want to be vaccinated. Uh, so I, I don't even think it would be necessary to consider that. And, you know, I, I do believe we'd have a hard time um, with, with a kind of with a mandatory approach that really hasn't been taken on anywhere that I've heard of. Okay, Har- Harvey, what about uh, the issue of high school students? And this is your particular area. Uh, high school students being in the classroom, being at school with each other, learning in a classroom environment where they're most comfortable, where they have social interaction, where they're learning in a way that they've become accustomed to. I- is that t- just too dangerous to contemplate to to move forward uh, with this um is, is there an argument to be made that the students are actually safer and better off in the classroom than they might be outside of it I, i'm not sure if i can if i can entirely resolve that question whether they're safer in or out i will say um, look, overall, there's no question the vast majority of students uh, benefit from face-to-face learning far more than they do from online. Um, you know, that's, that's well established. Um, there's a small percentage of kids for whom online is great, but for most of them, being in a classroom is the best, is the best uh, uh, situation. Under those circumstances, we need to put the safety measures in place, the health measures in place, like like distancing, smaller classrooms, uh, classes, um, improve ventilation, smaller cohorts, and so forth. And if you do those things at a time when there isn't the kind of community spread we're facing in in Ontario right now, which is which is frightening. Um, but you know, once once that's under control, 
let's put those health measures in place and, and let's get kids back, but only when all of those safety measures have been taken. Every reasonable precaution should be put in place, and I can't understand why it hasn't been yet, and I can't understand why the Minister of Education uh, in Ontario, Stephen Lecce, is now talking about improving ventilation when we're months into the school year. I mean, we made this call back in, in July um, when it became apparent that the, that the virus could be spread in an airborne fashion. Let's get on that. Let's improve the ventilation. Um, you know, I mean, it should have been months ago. Do I hear you saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and I know you won't let me, but do I hear you saying that there's very little chance of real cooperation between the government of Mr. Ford and the teachers' federations? Well, um, I, I mean, I guess... I guess um, that seems to be the case, but I will say we have repeatedly offered our collaboration and cooperation. Uh, I, you know, as I, I sent a letter to the minister on the day school closures were announced back on March the 12th. I, we, we are sincere in our offer. We wish they would take us up. So if that, you know, that isn't happening, that falls squarely uh, in, in the laps of, of uh, Minister Lecce and, and the Premier, that they're not willing to cooperate with us. We're certainly willing. We've made the call again yesterday. Uh, my my uh, union, along with the other uh, unions that represent teachers and, and other education workers in Ontario, um, said, let's set up a table of stakeholders, including uh, the, including the education federations, including other, uh, you know, parent groups and so forth, and let's work together to make this as successful, as safe, uh, as effective as we can, I've heard no response to that request. Well, ultimately, it's about the kids. And it's about your members as well, of course, teachers and and, uh, and everyone who works in the school environment. But it's about the kids getting their education, and it's about the adults learning to work with one another. And, you know, we sit on the sidelines and we watch. And I'm reminded of an issue that uh, something that happened in Pittsburgh many years ago where the city was in real economic danger. So they brought in a whole bunch of different stakeholders who had no agreement necessarily with each other, hadn't had agreement. And there was a sign on the uh, on the door entering the, uh, when you enter the conference room, and it was, check your egos at the door. And I'm not suggesting there are massive egos that are causing what's going on now, but cooperation is what what's going to be required because this COVID virus is throwing so many curveballs at us simultaneously. It's, uh, it's difficult to either hit them or get out of the way. Yeah, and 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 I completely agree with you. Um, you know, with with, with uh, the point I believe you're you're making, and and you know, look, you go back to when this to when the, the shutdown started. It's not just that we you know uh, pledged our cooperation; we demonstrated it. We had um, we had strike action going on at the time. We suspended it. We reached a, co- uh, a tentative agreement um, under those circumstances, which you know we we wouldn't necessarily have gotten there in in the absence of the closure. But it just it wasn't time to continue that battle. So we um, we we moved to a tentative agreement. Like we have demonstrated our willingness to to work um, on behalf of of students. Um, you know, my members, that is, that is what drives them every single day. Um, it's been driving them through this, even though it's been exhausting and very difficult for them, but they've been doing their absolute best. So it's, you know, like I say, it's, it's more than empty words on, on our part. It's action. And I just, I'd like to see it matched on the other side. Well, I appreciate you coming on the, on the program, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. I called you and you agreed immediately. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get that kind of agreement or any agreement for Mr. Ford to appear on this program. 
uh, since he was elected premier. There is an effort underway by Canadian musicians to have the guests who inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there's a petition drive underway. They're looking for a million signatures, and uh, it's at onchange.org. And the, the Hall of Fame will announce inductees late this month or early February. And the petition drive is supported by CJOB Radio, AM 680 in, uh, in Winnipeg, our great chorus radio station there. And, of course, Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings are both uh, from Winnipeg. And uh, the effort is also supported by globalnews.ca. Alan Cross joins me, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, consultant. He's one of the real music, one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to rock and roll in the world. His podcast is The Ongoing History of New Music. And, um, Alan, I remember you and I in the hallway in Hamilton at CHML and then Y95 talking music for considerable periods of time, and it's great to talk to you again after all this oh, time. Oh, yeah. I miss those talks and arguments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here I was. I mean, I was doing talk radio, and I love talking about music. So guess who? Share with us, please, the significance of this band, not only to the development of Canadian music, but to rock and roll internationally. Well, we have to go back to 68, 69. That was the beginning of a very long string of hits for the Guess Who. Uh, that culminated really with American Woman in 1970. In 1970, the, uh, they actually outsold the Beatles. And American Woman became a, uh, a number one hit in the United States. All their songs are still staples of oldies radio and the upper end of classic rock radio. They were one of the few bands... Uh, in the early 1970s, who became internationally famous without leaving Canada. That was a really big deal. There was Gordon Lightfoot who did it. There was the Guess Who who did it. Uh, a little later on, there was Rush who did it. But everybody else up until that point had been moving to the South to seek their fame and fortune. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, the band, Leonard Cohen, people like that. And all of those people are in the Rock Hall of Fame. So the issue here really is that there's no question that this is a great band that has a fan base that's worldwide, sold an awful lot of records, and continue to do some some interesting things. Um, the the problem is that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is pretty myopic. They they don't look much beyond the borders of the United States. And let's face it, the guess who was 50 years ago. Uh, they need a little bit of reminding and education. Uh, so that they can actually give them proper consideration. And uh, that's where the petition uh, comes in. We're looking for a million signatures on this petition. By the way, the, uh, there's a link to the petition on my Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show. You'll find it there. So add your name to it. Um, the, the importance of this band, and I said earlier, my feeling has been forever, and I'm a huge Burton Cummings fan, and, and Randy Bachman, uh, but Cummings had that incredibly pure voice he can hit every note and he can turn it into rock and and there were very few people who could do that there certainly were uh you know that, that i think he would classify Burton cummings as a tenor and uh he had a he still has a tremendous range in his voice and he could get you know uh uh you know very very sweet with with uh, the way he would sing the melodies i mean these eyes undone you can go through a dozen of them uh, and then he can get really rocky with, with songs like uh, American Woman and No Sugar Tonight. Uh, super talented uh, vocalist, super talented keyboard player, super talented songwriter. And he just happened to get lucky to uh, be able to hook up with Randy Bachman, who was also a fantastic musician with the guitar 
and uh, also a very, very good songwriter. Uh, the, the idea that this band could come out of nowhere, out of the middle of nowhere, you know, Winnipeg is, is 500 miles from the nearest big American city, and that's Minneapolis. For them to actually move from playing, you know, the community centers in Winnipeg to, you know, playing, you know, New York City and beyond is, is, is an incredible thing. So um, it's, it's, we look at them as, you know, a, a no-brainer. Yeah, of course, guess who? I mean, you think about contemporary bands like, like the Sheepdogs and, and Glorious Sons and a bunch of others. You know, they all owe something to guess who? In the United States, a little bit different, and this is why we, we have to uh, work a little bit harder. We, what we want to do with the, with the petition is get them on the ballot. And once they're on the ballot, then the uh, discussion and the chatter and the debate um, and the education will, will start. So uh, this is an important thing, and it's a long, long shot in terms of getting them actually into the hall on the first try, but we got to do it. We, we just simply have to do it. And and our listeners can get a lot more information uh, from from you and on your Twitter feed at Alan, at Alan Cross. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what are the what are the criteria uh, generally, if there is such a thing, for getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because when I look at the inductees, Alan, sometimes I think, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Why that one? Yeah, it makes sense. Can't understand that one. But then it comes down to personal taste. So, what are the general criteria that you have to meet to satisfy them? There's one criteria. You have to have released your album 25 years ago. That's it. The rest is all up to debates on aesthetics and artistic merit. Now, the problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that there's, it's controlled. The, the inductions are controlled by about 900 people in the music industry in the United States. And uh, there is a lot of politicking, a lot of arm twisting, a lot of strong-arming that goes on because... When you get into the hall, that gives you something that you can exploit uh, with, with, with your career. Hey, I'm a, I'm a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That carries a lot of weight. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, last year, Whitney Houston got in. Now, let's, let's be very honest. She is a, a, a tr- was a tremendous talent, did an awful lot of great stuff, some fantastic songs. But she's about as far as rock and, from rock and roll as you can possibly get. The, the, my thinking is that after she, she died, a couple of years went by, there was a concerted effort to rehabilitate her image. And part of that rehabilitation was to get her into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So my guess is that there was a lot of, of politicking that went on. And I remember when her, she was announced, and it was like, oh, okay. Are, 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 a lot of people were wondering, are we running out of people to induct? And uh, the answer is, well, no. If you look a little further than the end of your nose, you'll find that there's a lot of worthy rock and roll bands from around the world that deserve uh, this kind of honor. Now, if, if we look at the rock, uh, the rock Hall, there are about 235-ish inductees. There's about 35 from the U.K. There's two from Ireland, being U2 and Van Morrison. There's two from Jamaica, being Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff. There's one from Sweden, which is obviously ABBA, and five from Canada, like I mentioned. There's Rush, who took 15 years from their first date of eligibility to get into the hall, and the only reason they got in was because of fan pressure. Then there's the band, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, and Leonard Cohen. All of these people uh, moved south, and if you ask a lot of people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, 
you know, where these people came from, a lot of them would say, oh, they're American. Well, no, 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 they're, they're, they're not. Um, they, you know, given, given Canada's strength in the international music community, uh, we, we should be recognized a lot more. But then there's some really weird, uh, you know, omissions. For example, Craftwork, uh, one of the great founding fathers of all electronic music, and I don't care what genre of electronic music you talk about, it all leads back to Craftwork. They can't get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is just insane. Uh, Brian Adams is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's just just wrong. Yeah, uh, Alanis Morissette, the biggest selling female solo artist of all time with that jagged little pill album, not on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, who else are we missing? Um, Gordon Lightfoot. You know, he was he had a tremendous number of hits. He sold a lot of records. He's buddies with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan covers his stuff. He's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So uh, this is just stage one. Once we get through with the Guess Who, we've got our work cut out for us. Yeah. And on that Wheatfield Soul album, 1969, there is a song called Lightfoot, and it's a tribute by the Guess Who to Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, and that's after that. But that's before he actually really hit his stride in the early 1970s. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was a very close uh, community in radio back in those days because uh, you were fighting an uphill battle even in Canada. You couldn't get your songs on the radio unless you had somebody you know really really pushing for you. And uh, it, it was just kind of a nice thing. I, I remember growing up in Winnipeg and seeing the album "So Long, Bad a Time," and I thought, "Wow, this is really cool that a local band that is an international hit." wrote a song about Bannatine Avenue, which I know exactly where, where it was in, in Winnipeg. Uh, the, the idea of them taking Winnipeg to the world was, was just so cool. And that's what cemented them in the, in the hearts of so many Canadians. So we'll just keep working on get get to work on this to get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Jenny Motkalak is the the one who started the drive, and she's uh, Jenny at Motkalak. That's M O T K A L U K dot com. Alan Cross at Alan Cross on Twitter. Where, where's your website? It is a journal of musical things dot com. A journal of musical things dot com, and the podcast is the ongoing history of new music. The rioting in Washington and its repercussions. Colonel Peter Mansour was the executive officer to General David Petraeus for the multinational force in Iraq during the surge. Uh, he's a professor of military history at The Ohio State University, and Colonel Mansour is the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for coming back on the program, and in an email to me, Earlier in the week, you used the word sedition to describe what took place at the Capitol on Wednesday. Could you expand on that a bit, please? Well, absolutely. Um, the government was in the process of validating the outcome of the November election, which clearly uh, went to uh, Joe Biden. And these, um, these seditionists marched on the Capitol, entered the building in an attempt to stop that process, and uh, some indication that they were wanted to um, kill or capture some of our lawmakers in the process. So this is not a normal riot. It's not, um, uh, it's not peaceful protest. It's not for, protected by the First Amendment. It, it was an attack on our government. And, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, well, I know that the FBI is tracking down 
uh, many of the people who participated because they were not shy about boasting uh, on social media what they had done. And uh, I hope that uh, many of them spend a considerable amount of time in uh, federal penitentiaries considering their life choices. Colonel Mansour, you also uh, emailed that you want to see Donald Trump impeached before the uh, before the inauguration of, of Joe Biden on the 20th, which is just days away, which is the same thing that uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, both Democrats, are calling for, as well as some Republican members of the, of the Congress. What are the chances of that taking place? And why do you feel he should be impeached? Well, I don't know about the chances because the timing is, uh, is so tight, but uh, the impeachment can continue even after he's out of office, and it should. Um, this was something uh, extraordinary. It was a president who egged on a mob to march on the Capitol. It was, you know, an attempt to create a Bastille moment. Uh, if you're, you know, uh, French, you, you understand what that means. Um, and the only reason it didn't succeed is he didn't have any support. The crowd had no support from the U.S. military, which is a very professional organization and, and would not get involved. And uh, uh, but he, he egged him on. He, he clearly wanted to, in his words, rattle Congress. That's not normal behavior for a president. It's seditionist against his own government, and it needs to be punished. What's your, uh, what's your take on, and how do you feel about Nancy Pelosi, who called, said she called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, asking that he put in place extra protections against Donald Trump using the nuclear weapons codes. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, clearly um, our leaders in Congress are, are worried uh, that the president will do something rash during his final days in, in office. And, um, and they are a bit rattled, uh, thus the phone call. Uh, but I think what we're finding here, uh, our Constitution uh, creates three uh, separate and supposedly co-equal branches of government, but by far... Most power is allocated to Congress. They just have not been willing to use it because they've been so divided. This is an issue that it's actually united them. And I think uh, Trump is about to find out how much power our Congress actually has. Do you foresee, and this was uh, something that was of concern prior to the November 3rd election, it didn't happen the way, fortunately, it didn't happen the way many people feared it would, but do you foresee widespread unrest in the United States in the coming weeks and months? Uh, I foresee right-wing violence, and I think the Biden administration is going to have to put right-wing uh, terrorism as the uh, number one issue for the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, even uh, more so than combating uh, ISIS or al-Qaeda. Uh, I, I think that uh, the right-wing has been riled up, uh, they've been uh, fed a stream of lies that the election was fraudulent, which is clearly not true. And, um, and I think this is not the end of it. Uh, and so I think we're going to have a battle here in the United States with right-wing terrorists for some time to come, unfortunately. You, you mentioned the military um, and that the mob didn't have the support of the U.S. military. You're a former uh, senior U.S. military officer and spent decades in the United States Army. Is there a consensus, do you think, in, uh, in the U.S. military about Donald Trump? Uh, among the officer corps, uh, I think so. Um, you know, they, clearly there are some enlisted and maybe some officers as well that support him. Um, I don't know if they'd go as far as to, um, as to 
attempt to take over the government by force. Uh, but I know at the very upper echelons, there's zero uh, percent chance that they would uh, attempt to use military forces to support a takeover of the government. It just won't happen. And in the few seconds we have left, is there a football game that uh, your university is involved, <laughs> involved in in the next few days? Yeah, my Ohio State Buckeyes <laughs> play Monday night against the Alabama Crimson Tide. You know, if we were at full strength, it would be a great game. Uh, I'm just not sure what COVID has done to the team. Um, so we'll see. We'll see who's playing on the field Monday night, and we'll give it a good go. But the game against Clemson was terrific, and we'll uh, hang our hats on that one, and we'll see what happens in the championship. Yeah, that was, that was a really great game, and that, in my mind, really established, even with the power of Alabama, it's established uh, OSU as the team to beat. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 